Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and we're bringing you an episode today that, I don't know, I, I guess I would call it the panic meter for Democrats. It's probably pretty high. Let's let's be clear. Now, look, Democrats kind of love to engage in this. We, we sort of bemoan it generally when we're talking in the media, like, oh, why are Democrats always so negative? Why are we down on ourselves? But secretly, there's a part of us that sort of revels in the doom and gloom. It's sort of it's sort of disaster porn for for Democratic brains. But here's the good news about this episode today. My guest today is Mark Bergman. You may recognize that name from our previous episode. Mark is a Democratic strategist, media consultant, political consultant. I've worked with him before. Uh, we both had the pleasure of working together for and with former Congressman Paul Hodes. Mark's best attribute, and I mean this seriously for all the <laughs> candidates out there who may one day hire Mark, which you should, is Mark is the most suspicious person I've ever met. He yeah. sees threats everywhere. So this is sort of like the swinging a heavy bat in the on-deck circle of prepping for what might be coming. If it's a threat, Mark is aware of it. He's usually thought of a plan for dealing with it. He, he knows what the score is. And if Mark tells you things are not a threat, then you can be darn sure that they're going to be okay. Mark, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me again, Matt. Well, it's it's always a pleasure to have you, although, like I warned our listeners, I, I mean, just full full disclosure, we're going to be we're going to take a candid, honest look at where things stand from the perspective of two Democrats, one a current operative, one sort of a, a former washed up operative, me. Let's up. come on. All right. I'm 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 sort of struggling toward the shore. All right. So Let's start with where we left off. Now, one of your key areas of expertise is on Virginia. We had you on this show back in early October to preview the Virginia governor's race based on your, your longstanding expertise, your key political operative for then Governor Ralph Northam. Uh, Northam. And, you know, you kind of ran through the circumstances and how it could go. It did not go great. Um, and you know, there have been a lot of postmortems on this, including our, our you know, some, some that, that we focused on here on this show. But what did you take away from that election that people should really be paying attention to? Um, the, number one, um, there's some messaging things we can talk about. But the most important thing that happened in that election was this was the first election where Donald Trump wasn't president. And the question was, what happens? Um, the thing that was the most interesting for me looking at the vote totals is Democratic turnout was up from the previous gubernatorial election. African-American turnout was up from the previous gubernatorial election. You know what was really up? Republican turnout. <laughs> it was up at presidential levels. They had not seen that level of GOP turnout since Donald Trump ran for the White House a year ago. And it hit that level and it exceeded that level in certain localities in Virginia. So if you look at Glenn Youngkin's win, now there's been a lot of talk about, you know, winning some suburban vote. Yes, that did happen. Yes, it did happen. He did win some suburban vote. Yes, he won some independent vote. But when Republican turnout from the previous gubernatorial election increases 45 percent, 
it's going to spell trouble for the Democrats. And I think that, in my view, is the biggest lesson going into this election cycle is whatever we can do on Democratic turnout, the Republicans are just going to smoke us. It is just going to be unbelievable the level of turnout that they're going to be able to do, even without Donald Trump on the ballot. So that is what Democrats are facing. That's well, you know, that that depressingly resonates. And, you know, we've talked about this. It was the same story in New Jersey. So less people think that this is sort of a single data point. You saw the exact same pattern in New Jersey with Democratic turnout kind of hitting, you know, it's interesting when you sit down to run a campaign, to plot out a campaign, one of the very first things you do, if not the first, is you, you talk about vote goals. You talk about what do we think turnout is going to be based on previous elections and what number of votes do we need to get to 50% plus one single vote so that we have a majority. And, you know, if you're a Democrat sitting in, in either of these States or anywhere else around the country where democratic turnout was to, you know, paraphrase Barack Obama, pretty good. You would have thought, okay, we're, we're hitting our vote goals here. It's just that we got, we got totally swamped by Republican enthusiasm. I guess, you know, I was going to ask you something else about Virginia. I'll circle back to it, but I, I just, let, let me follow up on this point because I'd say one of the big debates going on in, in Dem circles right now, and it's kind of made it onto the pages of Politico and, and other politics outlets is what's the right strategy for Democrats to think about going into the midterms. There's one line of thinking that's, We've got to have a villain in this story. The best villain maybe of all time is Donald Trump. And we have all this fresh stuff coming up around January 6th that's going to keep coming up. We've got to hammer that stuff. There's another school of thought that says, okay, we'd hold on. In 2018, we didn't really run against Trump. I mean, he was sort of in the background but we ran on kitchen table issues. We ran on health care. We ran on the economy. We did much better. That's what's on voters' minds. We've got to have a coherent story about kitchen table issues. So what's the answer here? I mean, given what you just said about Republican turnout, is there a smarter messaging strategy for Dems here? Well, I think the, the real thing about, about talking about Donald Trump and the previous president in January 6th um, uh, and we'll get to January 6th in a second, is that there is, an, there is a consequence to putting Donald Trump's face on television screens. Um, <laughs> like you energize our base, but you energize their base just as much, if not more. So, you know, I think we've got to be cognizant of that, that you can't put a thousand gross rating points behind Donald Trump and that message and not have an impact on their turnout. Um, yes, we have to juice our base. Yes, they have to go vote. But if you're going to be facing a tsunami of, of turnout on their side, you can't lose independent voters. You can't lose them, which is why you've got to get back to the middle and back to where voters are, which are they're frustrated. They're agitated with the pandemic. They're agitated that gas prices are high. They're agitated when they go to the grocery store and food prices are high. They're just, they're generally agitated. So if you get, you've got to reach those voters and you got to talk about their agitation. And if the president of the United States comes out and gives the State of the Union on March 1st and tells everyone how great it is in this country, 
is going to glow over like a lead balloon to the average American. It's like, what are you talking about? It's like this, this guy in Washington is out of touch with my reality. So the Democratic Party's got, I, I think like you're talking about campaign strategy. I think we've got to get back in touch with the reality of what Americans are thinking on a day-to-day basis. We're off in some left field bubble, which is like totally divorced from the reality of America. And that is our problem as a party. Not, are we talking too much to the base? or Are we talking too much to the middle? It's like, we need to be talking in reality. And that is the challenge of our message. I mean, is that, is that sort of the take home? We've been dissecting over the last week, the San Francisco school board election in which three, look, let's just, we'll use the shorthand, three woke progressive types were recalled. Now, they weren't the only members of the school board, but those were the ones who were eligible to be recalled. And so they were put on the ballot by a bunch of frustrated parents. Was there some astroturfing? Was there some, you know, secret Republican money? Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It was like 75% of voters said, you know what? We're frustrated with you people. So what I hear you saying is, you know, Democrats and especially the progressive wing of the party can talk their way around this and say, oh, you know, it, it was this, it was that. But it seems like the take home message is on schools, for example, which was a really resonant issue in Virginia, you know, it, you can dither about masks and you can talk about whether it's it's proper to have a school named after Diane Feinstein or Abraham Lincoln or whoever, but voters think that you're dithering and you're not paying attention to what they really care about. And they are really, they are really anxious, concerned, pissed off and, and just generally unhappy. And if, if you don't get with that vibe, you're, you don't even have, you're not even paying the fare to, to get on, to get on the train, you know, and like at least have the rest of the conversation. You've got it. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, if we're losing among progressives in San Francisco with our messaging, we're in trouble. Like that's like, that's not even like we're in trouble. Like we are not going to even be like in the conversation. So I, I, I will say this, the, some of the things that the party is fighting for on racial equality, those are right things to do, but that may not be where the voters are. And if you're like willing to pay an electoral price for that, then you've got to understand there's going to be an electoral price to pay. Voters are angry. They want to take it out on people in charge. And you've got to show that you're willing to, 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 to share their anger and to make a change. Um, you know, you and I, you, we talked at the beginning of the, the podcast about what we did together 2010, this is a great example, right? 2010, Barack Obama gets elected, the economy's in shambles. And what does Barack Obama and the Congress focus on? Healthcare. That is not what voters wanted to hear about. They wanted, they wanted to put bankers in prison and get their economy back together. And we talked about healthcare for a year and a half. And it was the right thing to do. It gave more people access to healthcare, but there was an electoral price to pay by not focusing on what voters wanted to do, which was focus on the economy. So we lost a lot of seats. By a lot of seats, I mean 50 seats, control of the House and the Senate, and it crippled Obama's term for the next six years. So again, we all the things we're fighting for are true. They are right, but there may be an electoral price to pay. So that is the problem that Democrats face is you've got to get back to where voters are 
and actually go try to solve the problems they care about. They want their schools open. They want the price of everything to go down and they want the pandemic over. Like, I know that may not be real, but that's where voters are. And, you know, this, there was this uh, quote in the New York Times the other day of uh, the, the CEO of McDonald's and they asked the guy, well, why don't you sell more healthy options? He goes, I'm in the business of selling things that people want. And we've tried healthy options. They won't buy them. So I'm not going to sell things people don't want. And in politics, we're in the business of getting people elected. And we have to sell politicians in the, in the basis of reality of where voters are. That's just the nature of the beast. I think what's really frustrating is a friend of mine, a friend of mine from college, he, he's a business, he was a business major. He, uh, he went into marketing and his first job, he worked for Anheuser-Busch. No, no, I'm sorry. He worked for Coors. I want to get my, I want to get my beer companies right. That's here. not a good company, but yes. Well, you know, it's, here's the important thing is that now for our younger listeners, you'll have no idea what I'm about to say. His first job was to market Zima. Now for those younger listeners, Zima was an alcoholic beverage that tasted something like if you added vodka to Sprite. And, um, you know, it's actually, I, I didn't mind Zima. I didn't mind it at all. Of course but, not. But people did, yeah, right. Like, you had to add a Jolly Rancher to it to even make it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, you know, like it's, it's, it's sugar and, and alcohol. Like, what, what's bad? But the thing is, people did not like it. It, it, it did. And he had this unenviable job. He was the one who had to sell Zima. And that's sort of what it feels like for Dems right now. And I think what really drives a lot of us up the wall is you were get, kind of giving the, the Holy Trinity. A moment ago of what voters want. They want COVID to be over. They want schools to be open and they want prices to go down. And I think what, what drives people like me a little bit nuts is like, well, hold on a second. In most of the country, like COVID is kind of over. People are, yeah. are ignoring it, right? There's no, no yes. mask mandates in, in almost all the states of the union. Schools are open in most of the country, you know, functionally. And when you look at inflation, I understand the psychology of inflation. I understand that it looms really large in people's minds, but it's not the only thing that goes on in people's personal financial situation. And surveys show that 80% of Americans are actually very satisfied with their personal financial situation. It's, it's the best job market in 50 years. And you know there are other things, our, our, our bank accounts are 50% higher than they were two years ago. People are flush with cash. They can get jobs for the asking. And so there are other good things going on. And so for Democrats, I think what's what's really sort of, I don't know, it, 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 it's infuriating is all of these things are true. And I can yet hear my inner Mark Bergman saying, okay, those things are true, but what do you want to do about it? Because for whatever reason, you can blame Fox News you can blame people's weird psychology, but it's just not what people think. They just don't think so. So you have to sort of deal with reality as it is. Yeah, that's the, that's politics. Like that's electoral politics. Uh, you know, I want things to be better. I want to be further along on these other issues that Democrats care about. Climate change, racial equity, uh, you know, uh, I could go down the list. Chi universal child care, making college more affordable. Like all those are great goals. They will pull test incredibly well. Voters do not care. 
They do not care. They do not care about that right now. What are you doing to make my day-to-day life better? And Democrats have not successfully seized on that. Maybe, I don't know where that, why that is not the case. You know, I don't work in the White House, but it feels like the problem emanates from the White House in that we're not getting the type of messaging out of the White House that meets the moment. You know, it would be very helpful if on March 1st, when the president delivers the State of the Union, that he kind of resets and gives Democrats more of a roadmap, because otherwise it's going to be Lord of the Flies on the campaign trail and every Democrat's going to be fighting for themselves. And that's not, that is exactly how we lose. So, you know, we really need leadership at the top and hopefully the president will start to deliver some of that messaging wise um, and, and providing some political guidance to the Democrats running because outside of that, you know, it's a problem. Like Joe Biden's approval rating is exactly where Donald Trump's was at this point in his presidency. No different. They're the same. And Donald Trump's was personality driven. Joe Biden's is message driven is exactly why we're in this situation. And, you know, one of the things that jumps out to me about what you just said is kind of the divergence between what you're going to see in a poll and what the reality is about what you should do. It's interesting. In economics, there's this idea called revealed preference, which is there's sort of a chasm between what people say they want and when it's time to spend their dollars, what they do. And you're seeing this, for example, with candidates in Texas right now. All kinds of analysts said, ooh, this Texas abortion law is potentially a game changer. This is a big deal. And in polling, it seems kind of disastrous for Republicans. But none of the candidates running for office right now in Texas on the Dem side are running any messaging about abortion. Why? Because of what you just said. It's because what people want to talk about is their own personal financial situation and COVID and their frustrations and their anxieties and school boards. And, you know, so let me ask you a question about this. I mean, you are a a media consultant, a a campaign consultant. What, What campaigns do is they use polling. I mean, internal polling, not what you see in the, in the news as a compass to try and figure these things out. How do you dissect when you see polling that says, oh, voters, voters find this issue to be really important, how do you kind of see through and figure out, okay, but what do they really care about? Yeah, I mean, that's the hard thing in politics is like polling is also a guide. And, you know, it used to be that uh, polling was, uh, you know, people were pretty honest with pollsters. You get on the call on the phone and they would tell you what they you actually think. Now, like politics has become so partisan and so intense and people get scared or like, am I telling you what you want to hear or am I telling you what I actually think? So you got to take these polls with a grain of salt and you really got to drill down to get to what the actual preference is. You know, if you pulled sunshine and rainbows, it's going to pull well. The voters actually care about that. Probably not. And so is it going to change how they vote? Like, so even exactly. if they say, I really care about this, is that what's going to drive them when it's yeah. time to put, you know, pen to paper in the voting booth? I'll give you an example, you know, redistricting reform. Everyone will tell a pollster, I support fair, fair districts, you know, but then if you ask them, do they really care about it? Is that one of their top five issues that they vote on? The answer is no. 
And this is what's going on with Democrats and the Build Back Better agenda, which is you poll childcare, you poll uh, climate change. It all polls great. It's great, but that is not what's driving their opinion of the president or, or driving their opinion of Democratic leadership in Washington. What's driving the opinion is lack of leadership, is they feel that Democrats are focused on issues that are not what they are focused on. They are, they are divorced from my reality. And that is our problem. That is what Democrats are facing. On top of that, they, Democrats are facing an incredibly enthusiastic Republican base. Our only path, we're not gonna be able to fix the Republican enthusiasm. We will increase Democratic enthusiasm as the election comes closer. That's just the nature of politics. It won't reach Republican enthusiasm, but we'll get it up there. Our only path is to win among the middle. That is the only path. Because if we don't, if what happens in Virginia happens nationally, we will lose 40 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and lose the Senate. Because that well, is me, based on the model right now. Well, let me, t- let me then take that full circle to that kind of high-level strategic conversation. Because where we were, oh, two years ago, two years ago, I got a phone call from a mutual friend of ours, another outstanding Democratic political consultant, sort of a legend in Democratic politics, a guy named Tom King, who no, you and I both worked no, with before. He's especially a legend in Virginia, but he, he's, he's well known everywhere. And Tom, you know, Tom just said he, he had listened to a show I had done and he said, look, you're wrong. <laughs> I, well, that's. That's never a good call to get from an expert. It's like, God, oh, no, what did I get wrong? And he's like, You're, th- this, this election, this presidential election is over because the suburbs are gone for Trump, especially suburban women. He yeah. cannot get them back. He is so toxic that there's no recovery. Now, as it turns out, things were a little closer ultimately than, than Tom was projecting about two years ago. But he wasn't fundamentally wrong either. I mean, at that point, the Trump brand was so toxic to what pollsters might call the movers, the the, the people who you could persuade in elections. These are people who previously were were Republican or or lean Republican voters who were now a hard swing. They were maybe, you know, Obama, Trump, and now Biden voters. So I guess the question goes back to, that issue of is is either pathway that Democrats are talking about, you know, kind of kitchen table issues on the one hand, getting where where voters' heads are, versus talking about the horrors of Trump and the Republican Party, is either one of those pathways sufficient, or do they need a little bit of a dose of both to sort of rekindle some of the horror that that those types of voters, those movers in the suburbs, were feeling over the specter of Trump. Yeah, and, and, I, and I'll say this, you know, a lot of it's been said about Terry McAuliffe's strategy of going too hard on Donald Trump. Um, it would have worked had he not said on the debate stage that parents shouldn't tell kids what, tell parents what they should or shouldn't teach. So Not like, great, not great. No, that lost him a lot of the middle and energized the Republican base. Like he was, about, he was probably going to cruise to a half a point win before that statement and then the the race got out of hand um but the problem is joe biden won the commonwealth of virginia by 10 points 
Terry McAuliffe and the Democrats lost it by two. That's a 12 point swing in one year. So if you model that out to states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Florida, that a 12 point swing to the Republicans is a debacle for the Democratic Party. Debacle. And the answer is to your question, it's got to be both. You got to do both. You got to talk. You got you to hit the kitchen table and you got to scare Democrats out of like feeling like the party is like about to lose. You got to get them to say, this is what happens if you don't vote. These people are going to get in charge again. And that's the only way you're going to drive the Democrats out. Now, it will somewhat increase Republican enthusiasm, but that's a price you got to pay. You know, it does feel a little bit like we're sort of in the game of being in the princess bride election where right now voters are being presented with a choice where I clearly can't choose the wine in front of you. And I clearly can't choose the wine in front of me. And you know, what Republicans are arguing is like Democrats, they don't get it. They're a bunch of woke, you know, insane, like over the moon progressives that all they want to do is litigate social issues that have nothing to do with your well-being and your family. And they think that you're a bunch of bigots and, you know, they're just stuff. I, I, could, I could repeat, I could repeat sort of like the trade charges. Reachy is the nice way to say it. Smug too. Yeah, smug <laughs> yes. too. You know, but on the other end, for a long time, Democrats were able to subsist on the but Trump argument. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, but you can't choose the wine in front of you either. It's also poisoned. It's a it's a cup full of Trump. And yeah. it, it it seems like what you're suggesting is that the pathway here is you've got to you've got to sort of pay the toll to get into the conversation by showing voters that you get it, that you sympathize, you feel their pain. Then you can at least be in it and you could say, look, maybe you don't like everything about the coalition on our side, but can you really get with the coalition on the other side, you have to at least get yourself in the running for that. And it, it sounds like there, there are noises coming out of the White House that that's sort of the direction that they're going to try and pivot to in the State of the Union. I mean, we'll yeah. see where, where that's that's next week as we record this. But it that's what I'm hearing. I don't know if you're hearing the same thing, that, that Biden is going to try to do a feel your pain type thing on inflation and just kind of take his medicine. This is a real Bergmanism, but like he's going to try and take his medicine on like, I'm not going to try and litigate this. I'm not going to try and argue it. I feel you. It sucks. Okay. It sucks. I'm with you doing everything I can. Is that, are you hearing the same thing? Yeah, I, I, I am. I better hope so. But you know, it's hard to give a state of the union where you're not trying to tout that the state of the union is strong. Um, I've, right. you know, written a speech for a governor where we called it uh, like that Connecticut was entering a new economic reality and that we had to either adapt to that reality or we were going to die. And this is what the president probably needs to do. And that's not a fun speech to give. It's not a fun speech to write, but he needs to get back to, there is a new reality that Americans are facing and we have to go combat that. you know, the idea for that, I, that speech came from our friends at the Third Way and Matt Bennett. It's like those guys get it. Like that's where the middle of the country is, is in the, right in the moderate center. And, you know, if you look at what uh, Democrats need to do that are going to be successful in a year like this is Democrats that can transcend the Democratic brand are the ones that will succeed. Um, and because right now, 
and this is hard for Democrats to hear, the Democratic brand is as toxic as Donald Trump. For a lot of people, people believe that the radical elements of the Democratic Party are as toxic to the country as Donald Trump is. And I, that is a problem for us. I, I just I want to I, I want to just kind of dunk the, 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 the basketball that you just alley-ooped there. It, this is really hard. This is really, really hard for Democrats to hear. But I can attest that it's true. I talk to a number of Republicans all the time. <laughs> you know, it's it's my like little internal focus group barometer. These are Republicans who would not vote for Donald Trump. Now, some of them were able to bring themselves to vote for Joe Biden. Some of them couldn't quite get there, but they wouldn't vote for Donald Trump. And I hear a version of what you just said every week, all the time, which is that, you know, woke progressives are just as dangerous, if not more dangerous an element to our country as the Donald Trump MAGA faction of the world. And they will concede if I push them, okay, maybe the Trump element in our country is the more clear and present danger that like the whole country will end up lit on fire in the next two years. Yeah. But, you know, but they are not giving an inch on the idea that, you know, progressivism is, is sort of clawing away at everything that makes America, not to overborrow a terrible phrase, but that makes America great. Let me ask you particularly about that, that last point about the Democratic brand, because there was a, a big AP story last week reporting that Democrats in rural areas are essentially in hiding. They, mm -hmm. they, they are taking Biden bumper stickers off their car. They will not advertise. They won't let people know. It's like it was sort of a joke in the movie The Blind Side that like, you know, they, they adopted it. I think the, the, uh, the character says, would you believe that we would have a black son before we knew a Democrat? And I mean, that's, that's sort of the place that Americans in rural areas have gotten to is any Democrats that are there do not want to talk about it. And Republicans are on the warpath about it. And you see it in Virginia, by the way, among rural voters in 2020, Okay, Joe Biden lost among rural voters, but he lost by six points. He lost 52 to 46 among Virginia rural voters. Terry McAuliffe lost 63 to 36. He lost by 27 points and rural turnout was up. It was it was up three points. So it's that kind of dual problem of horrible brand and high enthusiasm. What on earth can Democrats do about this? Because I, I've had. I've had experts like you on this show, like former Ohio Democratic Chair David Pepper, say, yeah. look, we're going to lose. We're going to take it on the chin in rural areas. But there's a big difference between losing 80-20 and losing 70-30. Like that extra 10 points in a statewide race is make or break for us. Is there anything that we can do about the Democratic I, brand? You'll appreciate this as a Simpsons fan that uh, we always say as Democrats that this is the worst we'll ever do among rural voters. And it's like, this is the worst cycle so far, so far, <laughs> so far. Oh, and no. every cycle, it feels like the bottom keeps getting lower. And I think we believe that we've hit our bottom. And I don't think we have. And the real problem isn't among, it's not about rural voters. In my view, rural is like a term we use to say, oh, these people who live in like farmland wrong. These are people who have not graduated college. That is our problem. 
We do not have an economic agenda for people who are non-college educated white voters. And heads up, there are a lot of them in this country. There are a lot of people who did not go to college, who live in this country, who happen to be white. And we cannot just write that whole part of the country off and say, well, screw them. We don't have a plan for them. Um, and that's the problem. That's what's going on, is we need an economic agenda for people who don't go to college in this country, because we don't have one. We don't talk about that. We don't, we pretend they don't exist. And, you know, and then on top of that, we dump on, dunk on them about a bunch of cultural issues that they happen not to agree with us on. So that's why it's toxic. Like if we had an economic plan, we're going to say, here's what we're going to do. If you don't go to college, we've got, we're going to give you free vocational training. We're going to get you an apprenticeship. We're going to give you a job. Instead, the Democratic Party sells out the big tech companies who then basically uh, destroy the rural parts of the country and destroy retail and destroy the service industry. Like this is a part where Bernie Sanders and AOC are making a lot of sense. Like we need an economic plan for the middle part of the country. And until we do that, we're just going to get killed among this group, like just absolutely decimated. And I always go back to this idea, and this is like your, your friend David Pepper uh, said, like, I don't think the Democratic Party has a plan to understand that, like, the future of us is not in Texas and Arizona and Georgia. Like, if that, that's the future, maybe 20, 30 years from now, we're about to get crushed in the upper Midwest, like absolutely crushed. And we have no electoral path without the upper Midwest. And there are a heck of a lot of non-college educated white voters that live in the upper Midwest. And we keep losing them by a bigger margin every election cycle. And Donald Trump has captured them in a way that we shouldn't have allowed to happen. And those voters, those are the Obama, Trump, Biden voters that we need to get back, that we need to show that we care about their lives. One of the things that's sort of disquieting, to use a $100 word for, I, I find it very upsetting about looking at the data and analysis of the last 10 years is how a bunch of very smart people on the Democratic side totally misread the data from 2008 and especially from 2012. There was a misunderstanding that what fueled Barack Obama's victory in both of those races was strength among a diverse younger set of voters that it was it was racial diversity uh -huh. ethnic diversity and, and and young voters and in fact what we are now seeing as we kind of reconsider what was in the numbers was actually he did surprisingly well in the upper Midwest among non-college educated white voters. He did surprisingly well in Michigan, in Iowa, in Ohio, among voters like you describe, and they are gone. They are hard gone. I, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's sort of disturbing. And I don't, you know, look, I, I've had some, some other very smart people on this show say, yeah, but we still have an opportunity among those portions of the country that are that are growing you know my young non-white college educated and that's true or even non-college educated non-white voters and that may be true and yet right now in the here and now 
this this next set of elections is going to turn on the ability to at least break even, claw back a little bit of territory with the segment that you describe. And we we just seem to not be anywhere close to doing that. We're, we're not. And then it gets worse because when you talk about the Hispanic community, which is the growing community that we're talking about on diverse issues, is that group is entering the second and third generation of immigrant families. And, you know, we're Jewish, the Irish, the Italians, you know, hundred years ago, they weren't considered white people. They were considered a different ethnicity in this country. And Hispanics, as they become more and more assimilated, are going to dis- disperse into, into the country's political divide. And they're not going to go to the Democratic Party. They're going to divide. And if we're losing among non-college educated white voters, worse, every cycle, it's, it's, it's going to lead us to a permanent status of minority in the country. And it's a problem. It's a big, big, big problem inside the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was the party of the working class from the Great Depression up until Bill Clinton. It like totally lost its way. It is like totally not the party of the, the of of people that that uh, that were you know in, that were blue collar. We've lost it. We are the upper middle class party, and it's just it's a problem. And and that is not the majority. The path to the majority for the Democratic Party. We can't be a party of upper middle class white college educated voters and African Americans. That, that's not the coalition that is going to lead us to a permanent status of majority. We've got to get back into the working class and we've got to develop an economic plan to give people that are non-college educated hope at the middle class because they have no hope at the middle class right now. Yeah. And, you know, this does sound like some Stan Greenberg, Macomb County, Michigan type thing. What you know, the, his classic study of what happened in in one of these swing counties with Reagan Democrats in the eighties. But that that really was you could start to see the seeds of this. And over the last thirty years, it's been this kind of in fits and starts. In fits and starts, you have seen this this slide. All right, look, we have bummed out the Dems on this show. I mean, Republicans listen to this show are probably like Mr. Burns on the, you know, they're like tenting their fingers. Excellent. But, you know, for the Dems who have, who have endured (laughs) this show so far and are, are, are feeling bummed out. Let me ask this. Is there a little turn of the tide here? I mean, you are, as I teased at the top of the show, you are nothing if not a steely eyed realist about democratic political prospects. And there are some indications that the world is getting better around us. Inflation remains a problem, no doubt. But there are indications that it's going to turn a little bit as we head into the summer. COVID clearly getting much better, five times lower than we were just six weeks ago. And you know we continue to see these other really excellent economic indicators. So do you see Democratic chances trending in the right direction? as we move into the summer, or is it just too soon to tell or, or not enough? Uh, the thing about elections and football games and everything is like, that's why you play all four quarters because you never know what's going to happen at the end. You know, up until the last two minutes, the Cincinnati Bengals were about to be world champions. I mean, it's just, you don't know. That's why you, you run hard till the end. And I, I think for the Democrats, 
we can reposition, we can recalibrate. Up until 2018, 2018 was about to be a Republican wipeout until the last couple of weeks of the election, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. And it kind of turned a couple races uh, in Trump's favor. He still lost the House, but the Senate wasn't as big of a disaster for him. You just don't know. And you don't know who, how the Republican primaries are going to play out. You don't. There are like a ton of factors that could play in our favor that could mitigate the damage. But the idea that we're going to walk, I, I don't think there's any person who believes that we're not going to walk away from this election with some damage inside the Democratic Party, mm. the, the extent of the damage. It's the extent of the wreckage. And I think we can mitigate that over the next you know, six, seven months and then you know, possibly hold on to the Senate. Maybe if you know, a couple of breaks go our way, maybe the House, like maybe. We don't we, we could hold hold our losses to like five to 10 seats. But I think that's really optimistic. It, it's just at the end of the day, like it's the size of the wave that's about to crest over us. And then it's a question of who can survive. And that's that's the reality that we're facing as a party. There's nothing unusual or historically unusual about this. This happens to parties in the first midterm. This is very historically accurate pendulum swing back and forth. Like that's the nature of politics. I think as strategists inside the party, our goal now is how do we mitigate that and push at the ocean a little bit to see how many we can get to survive the wave. You know, look, I, for anyone out there that that didn't feel like that was enough good news for, for their taste, there's actually a lot of good news in what you were just saying, because there is a big difference. I'm a horrible golfer. You know this. I, yeah. I gave up golf 10 years ago in, in favor of, of actually having children. You're not a bad golfer, but there is a big difference. If you've ever tried to play golf, there's a big difference between swinging and not making contact. And now you have to swing again from essentially the same spot and skittering the ball 20 yards forward. It, it makes a big difference in your prospects and just mitigating the damage. Look, all the wins are in our face. And if we can just do better than we're anticipated to right now, if we can enter 2024 with less of a hole to dig out of, that would be a huge win. If we can, if we can limit the damage, I don't want, I just don't want to undersell that just quickly. Remington, the, the insurance companies that represent Remington settled uh, on the lawsuit from the Sandy Hook families. You're also an expert on Connecticut politics. Is, is this as big a deal as it felt like to me? It, it is because Democrats like to talk about the NRA being some amorphous agency. The NRA is gun manufacturers. So this was a settlement between the, the NRA and, uh, and an acknowledgement that their products kill people to the extent and that they are somewhat culpable of that. That is uh, as big of a settlement as uh, Philip Morris or Altria admitting that cigarettes kill people. Big deal. I got to let you go. Mark Bergman, Democratic political consultant, media consultant, all around expert. Thanks so much for all your insights. Thank you, Matt, for having me.